I had yeah. done a lot of cases in my career. I knew the right way to go about it. And we said to them, well, what do you have in mind? He said, just a little bit. And I believe his comment was 500 million to start. Major victory, the arrest of a Mexican drug lord, El Chapo, as he's called. The world's most notorious drug lord was extradited to the United States. Revealing that he had worked with the feds to bring down the accused drug lord. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. Today's guest is my good friend and co-author, Michael R. McGowan. Mike is a legend in the FBI. Nobody in the FBI has worked more undercover cases than him. Nobody. Only about 2% of FBI agents ever work more than one undercover case. Mike has worked 50. 50. Today we're going to talk about one of his most significant cases, which is when he infiltrated and took down the Sinaloa cartel and its leader, the infamous El Chapo. Make no mistake about it, Mike is one of the most decorated and experienced special agents in FBI history, and he's today's hero behind the headlines. First, Mike, I would just like to ask you a little bit about your background. How did you get into this line of work? Uh, I didn't have a choice. I came from a police family. My dad and my grandfather were police officers. <clears throat> I didn't know you could go into another profession, but uh, <laughs> from a very young age, I grew up around cops. That was, you know, they were in my house. They were would give me rides to sporting events. It was all I knew. So inevitably, I took a path into law enforcement. I was first a police officer. I was a street cop for a little less than five years. And during that time, uh, I had been approached by an FBI agent who was uh, interested in seeing if I was interested in the FBI, which I really hadn't given a lot of thought to. Uh, but I filled out the application. I loved being a street cop, so I really wasn't overly concerned with the application process. I just kept showing up uh, when and where they told me to. And uh, then one day, a uh, Letter came in the mail, and I was off to Quantico. Uh, but it was it was something that hmm. I knew I was going to enter law enforcement literally from the age of you know five or six years old. It was just kind of the family business. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in Boston, the Boston area. I grew outside. Grew up outside of Boston. Uh, I come from a, believe it or not, a large Irish Catholic family, and. Uh, where I come from, you pretty much grow up to be a cop, a fireman, or a criminal. And, mm -hmm. uh, I chose cop. Okay, good choice. <laughs> good choice. Uh, so can you tell us how long had you been in the FBI and just a little bit about you know how you got into undercover work? Okay, so before we get to the Sinaloa cartel case, I'll just explain that at that point, I had 20, 22 years in the FBI. I was a undercover coordinator in the Boston division, which means you manage and coordinate all undercover activity. Mm -hmm. uh, I was not a supervisor. I was not a manager. I was a street agent. But because of the unique nature of the undercover technique, uh, the undercover coordinator is usually assigned to a experienced undercover agent. I had been doing undercover work 
at that point for, you know, 15 years or so. And in 2009, when this case first started, not only was I the Boston undercover coordinator, but I was also assigned to a uh, national undercover team that the FBI was running. Uh, I was the operations team leader, Mm. which meant that I literally set up the scenarios, assigned the undercovers. So again, at that point, 2009, undercover work was full-time. Very few people in the FBI work undercover full-time. I was fortunate enough to be one of them. Mm-hmm. And what was your what was your training in undercover work in the FBI? Well, my training was unlike today's FBI. There was no training when I started in the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's a very, very intense process if you're if you're interested in undercover work. There's a fallacy out there that every FBI agent works undercover. That's not true. Less than 10% of the agent population works undercover. So one out of 10 agents is what's called certified, which means you have to go through a vetting process, a testing process, a psychological process, and then you have to uh, complete successfully complete mm-hmm. a two-week undercover school run by the FBI. Uh, that all started in the in the mid nineteen around nineteen ninety four, nineteen ninety five. I was in the FBI before that working undercover, so I was grandfathered into the process. If you were already working undercover prior to the initiation of the formalized training. So when I learned, I learned through mistakes. I learned through trial and error. I went out there and did it. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing when I first started. I was mm-hmm. horrible at it, but I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, you told a funny story about uh, <laughs> the first time you were sent out to, uh, I think it was a mafia like hangout, right? Yeah, that was the story where <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I was told to go in. My, my assignment was, well, first of all, I was selected because I had been a cop. In those days, the theory was that if you had been a cop before you were an agent that you would are natural for an undercover work, which is ridiculous because it's, it's the exact opposite. The, a police department is a very, uh, very structured, organized chain of command. Uh, but that was just the way the FBI did it in those days. So an agent approached me and I said, well, what's my assignment? And he said, well, go find out, go find out things. So that was the extent of my instruction, and I was given an assignment to go into a certain location, which I did. And the first time, as you know, the first time I walked in, the the entire place stopped talking, literally like an E.F. <laughs> Hutton commercial. Um, so that got off to a bad start. And I spent about three weeks going back and forth uh I didn't look like them, I didn't dress like them, I didn't act like them. And then finally, and kindly, a very elderly Italian gentleman grabbed me around the shoulder one night and basically said, kid, you know, you're really nice, but what are you doing here? <laughs> Get lost. So that was my that was my uh, entree into undercover work. I mean, I laugh about it now, but it was it was so ridiculous at the time. 
and yeah. now we don't put and our dangerous to just kind of throw it is, a kid it is. into with no training into a yeah, no it a was lion's den, so to speak right and I I also think I mentioned to you another time uh, one of my first undercover drug buys when I went to buy the drugs uh, the seller just stopped and said sorry officer we're we're out of dope tonight so I was 0 for 2 starting out uh, <laughs> And again, I chuckle about it, but I really caught the bug because it really is a, it's a fascinating technique. It's very, very interesting. It's basically, as you get to understand it and as you get to uh, apply it and practice it, it's basically a psychological chess match with bad mm-hmm. guys. You know, I, I, I tra- now I train, I train undercover agents now and what I tell them is, you know, you have to convince a bad guy that you're as bad, if not worse, than him or her, and you're an FBI agent, so it's not easy. Right, right. Um, right. In court, you know, in court, when I've testified as an undercover, the, the the defense lawyers will always start their first question, well, you spent your whole case lying to my client, and your answer is, yes, sir, I lied to him every day. It doesn't usually work well <laughs> if you tell him you're an FBI agent. And the jury right, understands right. that. You know, you're living. Yeah. You, you present yourself and you testify as a professional witness. But when you're in that role, uh, you're one of them. Can you tell us uh, how the El Chapo case started and how you got yep. involved? So in yep. 2009, as I mentioned, I was the undercover coordinator in Boston. I was also part of that national undercover team. So <clears throat> I was flat out. I, I was working probably a dozen undercover operations, if not more. And there was a young agent in the Boston division that came to see me, and he was literally a a baby. He was, I think he had two or three years in the FBI total. And he kind of hung his head outside my office, peeking in, and finally I said, can I help you? And he said, listen, I am working with an informant, and I I think I have something, and I was told to come see you uh, because you could come up with something devious. So that's how the conversation started. And I said, what do you got? And I kind of was half listening to him. I really wasn't devoting a full attention. I had a lot of stuff on my plate. And he started to tell me that he had developed an informant who had been in prison prior, who was now out of prison, but had been in prison um, with members of the Sinaloa cartel. And as soon as he mentioned the Sinaloa cartel. At that time in 2009, uh, the Sinaloa cartel was the most powerful drug organization in the world. The Sinaloa cartel had been founded in the late 60s in the Mexican state of Sinaloa, and according to the U.S. Justice Department, had been responsible for importing more than 200 tons of cocaine and heroin into the United States. It also supplied the United States and other markets with massive amounts of methamphetamine, marijuana, and MDMA. Nobody knows exactly what the revenue of the Sinaloa cartel is, but it's estimated that in 2009, it was around $40 billion a year. To put that into perspective, that's equal to the worldwide sales of the Coca-Cola company. Since the mid-90s, the cartel had been run by pint-sized drug lord Joaquin Achevaldo Guzman Lorca, commonly known as El Chapo, or Shorty. Born the son of a poor cattle rancher, he was now worth billions and ranked by Forbes magazine 
as the 41st most powerful person in the world, ahead of Steve Jobs. And he was the world's most wanted fugitive at that time, too. He had escaped from a prison in Mexico, and he fled into the Mexican mountains. And for whatever reason, the Mexican government wasn't about to go get him. So I remember this like it was yesterday. I literally felt you know, a, a rush that if we had a chance to make a case against the Sinaloa cartel, because being in Boston, Boston is not a distribution center or a a core, you know, it's it's just a, a little city in America. But as I explained to the young man, and he's now a, a, a good friend of mine, and he's also now an undercover agent. But at the time I explained to him, these prison relationships are critical. When people go to prison, who they meet, uh, relationships develop inside, uh, they're like gold. It's like getting your PhD in crime when they go to these prisons. So I wanted to interview his informant and see if the guy was the real deal or not. And so the first thing we did was to go interview the informant. And he was the real deal. He had been in federal prison for 17 years. Uh, he had been intimately involved with the Pablo Escobar group out of Medellin, Colombia, back in the day. And like most good informants, he had a massive ego. Uh, he was always the smartest guy in the room, which is kind of surprising if you spent 17 years in federal prison. But the point is, they're, they're a, a breed apart. So not only when the young agent came to me, but then I met the informant, I thought we had a chance if we set it up right. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the way you met the informant and the way you kind of handled him, I thought was very, very interesting. Well, what happened at the time, and, and you got to remember, and I want to make it clear to your audience, this stuff you learn by trial and error. And I probably have made more mistakes as an undercover agent than anyone else in the FBI's history. But you learn each time you make a mistake. So I had been dealing with informants for many, many years. Uh, that's how I was introduced in one of my first undercover cases. Uh, I learned how to be an undercover, not by an FBI agent. I learned by a criminal. <laughs> so getting to this informant, uh, the very first time I meet, met him, the other agents were there. They were all in their blue jeans and their casual clothing. I came in with a very expensive suit, uh, dressed up, and I sat intentionally. I sat to the side of him so he couldn't make direct eye contact with me. And for two hours, I just listened. Never said a word, never asked a question. I wanted to hear him, and I wanted to unnerve him, which it did, because as soon as I left the room, he made a comment that I can't repeat on the air, but he basically asked the case agent who this guy was. And we ended up becoming very close. Uh, he did a phenomenal job for us. And people think all the time they hear the word informant, that somebody can, you know, inform on others. Everyone has a choice in life. We, the FBI wouldn't exist without informants. So you need to have a relate. You can never trust them 100%, nor did I ever trust him 100%. But they can get you into places that FBI agents can't get into. So for the next three years with the case agent, you know, we spent 
thousands and thousands of hours planning this case. And what was uh, the informant's nationality? He, he was a, uh, I believe he was Cuban or he was from Cuba originally. He was a Spanish, uh, of Spanish descent, but he was very educated, not, not in academic settings. Although I do think, I think he was a college graduate, but he, he could hmm. put together like financial deals in 10 seconds. He was very, very savvy. Wow. Uh, because he had been dealing with the Escobars and the and the Sinaloa cartel, and again, people. Yeah. So he'd been doing this for a long yeah, time. Yeah. People think you know these guys are, you know, they're not well educated. They may not be well educated academically, but streetwise and dope wise, mm-hmm. they're brilliant. Informants are key in making undercover cases. They're usually the way into the criminal organization. The informant in this case, Vargas had a long criminal resume, which included working with Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel. He was also in possession of a massive ego. Despite the fact that he had been arrested twice and had served a total of 17 years in federal prison, he considered himself a major player in the drug world. Although the case depended on Vargas, the informant, Mike knew he had to watch him like a hawk for any sign of betrayal. He knew that if any point during the case... Vargas thought he could make a better deal for himself on the other side of the fence, he wouldn't hesitate to jump, and all the undercovers, including Mike, could be killed. And again, believe me, we had our uh, our differences and we had our blowouts, but you're literally trusting these people with your lives. He knew that we were agents. He was going to introduce us to the Sinaloa cartel. So, you know, we need to form a trust relationship that allows all of us to to wake up and go to work the next day. So uh, he um, he was, and I've said this before, when the Sinaloa cartel case was over, I personally got a lot of credit and attaboys for that case. And I tell everybody who listens, if not for the informant and not for the other three undercover agents who I worked with, the case never would have been made. So I was just like, yeah. I, I tell people, I was like Mariana Rivera. I just came in in the ninth inning to clean it up. The informant and the three other undercovers really made the case. So so now you've met the the uh, the informant. Um, how do you proceed? I'm sure you did like an evaluation at that point to decide, okay, this guy is somebody I can work with. And then what was the plan from there? Again, at that point, I had a lot of experience. So I knew that if we were actually going to take a run at the Sinaloa cartel, we had one shot at it. It had to be perfect. So you needed the right mm-hmm. personnel. You'd re- you needed the right manpower. You needed the right plan. And I also knew I had worked dope all my life. You know, I broke into the FBI working Escobar and the Medellin cartel. I was in Philadelphia. I wasn't in Medellin, but our squad was named the Colombian Dope Squad. You couldn't, you couldn't use that anymore, but we were targeting Colombians and Escobar. So I also knew that the Sinaloa cartel would never have anything to do with us if we were connected to the United States, all right? The only thing that the cartels in Mexico worry about is the FBI or DEA grabbing them because they know we lock up dope dealers. So in this case, I came up with a plan that we had to be a criminal organization that had no nexus to the United States. So we wanted to be, we eventually decided because of the personnel we had, we were going to be a a Sicilian-based 
crime organization that was looking to import cocaine and heroin from Mexico into Europe. <clears throat> and that's the way mm-hmm. that's the way we instructed to the informant to go back to them and explain, hey, I'm working with this group in Europe. Here's what there's about, but they have nothing to do with the United States. And that was a that was a critical decision early on that I believe resulted in why the case was successful at the end. So he goes to Mexico, he makes contact with his contacts within the Sinaloa cartel. Right. <laughs> yes, we we as agents, we cannot travel into Mexico. Legally, that's not permissible mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can send informants into Mexico. <clears throat> so he was sent into Mexico, I believe, four or five times. But after the second meeting... He had done so well that he was instructed to come back to meet directly with Chapo, and that's what he did. So once we had that, uh, you know, we, we figured, we again, any day this case could blow up, but we just kept pushing ahead, and again, the informant was critical by basically putting the two groups together. So he went into Mexico at high risk, you know. He was on his own. We couldn't follow him. We couldn't protect him. So he'd go into Mexico for, you know, four, five, six days at a time. And hopefully he came out every time, and he did. (laughs) And eventually he put the two groups together. He convinced Chapo that this European group was interested in setting up an arrangement. Was he was there a name for the European group or he was just saying a European crime The Italians. Group? We the were Italians. we were supposed to be Sicilian so he just referred to us as the Italians. Okay, another question. When he was in Mexico, did you have any contact with him? Did you no. have any way to monitor what he was nope. saying? And that's no. why I give that's why I give him a lot of credit. He went in there no FBI assistance, no US government assistance. He went up into the mountains to meet with Chapo. He was he was escorted by military Mexican military personnel. Uh, you know, very <laughs> very nice. dangerous game. Yeah. Not yeah. a game. Not, I shouldn't even call it a game. Very dangerous assignment. Right. And ha- had he met Chapo before? No. No. In those two meetings, when he met with the underlings in Mexico, he was convincing enough. And this is where, this is where the the credibility from the seventeen years in federal prison. He can throw around the right names. Okay, so he, you know, he was the real deal is the best way to describe it. He was a, a class A criminal, and luckily wow. he was working for us at the time. Wow. And what was the arrangement with him? What was he going to get out of this? Reduced Again, it's a, very, uh, uh, it's a very odd story, but when he was arrested the last time before he went to federal prison, under the U.S. government forfeiture laws, the mm-hmm. government seized a bunch of his properties which included some properties that belonged or were used by family members. And mm-hmm. all he wanted was to get those properties back. Hmm. So his incentive to cooperate was literally to, I guess, take care of his family with these properties. So, you know, the. And these were properties in the United States? In the United States that, we had, that, that the U.S. government had seized. And eventually, because he performed well, those properties were eventually returned to him. Wow. So uh, so he makes four, three or four trips into Mexico, and he arranges for uh, the, the Italian gang to meet with the Sinaloa cartel. Is that correct? 
Yes, and we we had you got to understand when when you have an informant as as good as an informant he was, you have to instruct them so that they know A B C. You have to tell them this this and this, and you got to stick to the script. So smartly, when they said you know we'd like to connect with the Italians, he says, "Hey, you got to talk to them directly." You know, I don't represent them. I'm just trying to make a buck here putting people together. So he arranged that the only way the negotiations would occur would be directly with the Italians, which is what we wanted, obviously, because we had a team ready to go if and when we were able to meet them. And the reason we went with the Sicilian is we had an undercover agent on the East Coast that spoke Sicilian, had worked international undercovers, and would be perfect for the role. So yeah. we lined up as the leader of the gang. Yeah. We lined up. Yeah. You know, it took us six to 12 months to get our ducks in a row because we knew they'd check us eventually. They have attorneys, they have private investigators. We were going to be vetted at some point. So that takes a little time to set up. So we went to our uh, friends in law enforcement overseas and basically created this group. And if anybody were to check, you know, we appeared to be legitimate. So you had to talk to. European law enforcement, so that if the Sinaloa cartel checked, they could back back it up. There, there that, is that something there, that this it, group existed. Yes, there's something yeah. in law enforcement undercover work called backstopping, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which means you have to create a persona, either an individual or business persona, that will withstand scrutiny. It's very complicated. I'm not going to reveal the uh, the tradecraft involved, but. They're going to check on you. You can't be a bad guy and tell somebody, hey, I'm so-and-so or I want to do 20 tons of dope. You know, they vet it just like a business person would. So we had to go around the world, literally, and set this up. Because as I said at the beginning, we had one shot at these guys. One one mistake and we were done. So you had to establish that this group had a history. Had a history. The names were uh, known internationally. We have a... Uh, For instance, we did a lot of work with the Spanish National Police. We did a lot of work with the Italian National Police. We were all over the world. And the FBI supported us because we literally were going after the the top drug organization in the world. Okay, so so your informant arranges this meeting. I believe it was supposed to take place in the first meeting took place in February of 2010. Is that correct? 2010, correct. Because it took us about a year to set it up. Yeah. Okay. And do you want to describe the, the your team that was going to meet with the Sinaloa cartel? Right. So for, like I said, for about a year, we were setting this up. And my job was to basically be the puppet master behind the scenes, pulling the mm-hmm. undercover strings. And I knew exactly who I wanted to be working and what their roles would be. Mm-hmm. So I took uh, three undercovers, two from the uh, national team that I worked with, and one from Boston, and another one from an East Coast city. So I had four undercovers lined up, and the Sicilian speaker was going to be the boss, El Jefe, and he was perfect for the role. We're meeting them in, as you said, February of 2010. Right around Christmas of 2009, my good friend, the Sicilian, uh, was offered a private sector job in retirement and retired from the FBI. Uh, apologized profusely, but, you know, I wished him well. and Yeah. But he, he got pulled out of us at the last minute. So we had to, uh, you know, overcome and adapt and adjust, and we did. And 
Ironically, I ended up selecting myself to replace him. <laughs> and even though I don't speak Sicilian or Italian or Spanish and sometimes struggle with English, <laughs> um, I knew that I could have I knew that I could do the role. Yeah. You basically had 20, 25 years of undercover experience. Right. You know, to the FBI, this was like our Super Bowl. At this point in his career, Mike was a veteran of undercover work. He had infiltrated the Russian mob, three Italian mafia families, and a major Pakistani heroin importer. Undercovers choose roles that they're familiar with. For this job, Mike used the cover of an irascible Italian mob boss named El Viejo, the old man. He was familiar with this role because of his dealings over the years infiltrating Italian crime families, so he knew the character well. So with the other three undercovers and myself and the informant and the case team, the young agent who was helped by other senior agents, <clears throat> we probably had 10, 15 guys assigned to the to the case, and it, it literally was an all-star team. It was a very, very competent, um, experienced, successful team, which was the only way we could have attacked this group. So you arranged to meet where... And again, we we set up our organization. We mirrored the Sinaloa cartel. We knew how they were structured, who was in charge, how they did things. We basically did the same thing. Yeah. So the first meeting, now they knew that we were from Europe, and we invited them to Europe, initially hoping that they wouldn't accept. And then we said, you know what? The cops watch us over here all the time. Yeah. So let's meet somewhere neutral and just have a vacation. Let's meet in the States. So that's how we snuck back in because we had to establish what's called venue. In order to prosecute crimes in the United States, crimes have to be committed within the United States. Got it. <clears throat> so they were very appreciative that we told them, don't come to our homes because the cops are going right. to identify you. Right. They're watching us all the time. So we'll go to Miami. No one knows you in Miami. We'll go to Miami. So we set up this meeting in Miami yeah. for the initial meeting, which is, again, that February t- 2010. Yeah. So the meeting, so that meeting, and you got to understand, there was a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, you know, I, I can laugh and joke, I'm retired now and all that. But at the time, the FBI was like uh, high strung. This was like a big deal, all right? So there was a lot of pressure on us to perform and to succeed. We set up this meeting. The four of us, the four undercovers go. I brought in a female undercover to help us. Uh, we set up this uh, operation in, a, in a, a high-rise condo right on the Atlantic Ocean. Beautiful mm-hmm. view, mm-hmm. etc. And when we were preparing and right as the, uh, the Sinaloa representative was coming to meet us, I noticed that the atmosphere was very tense and, and stressful. And I had worked with these other three guys all my career, and they're very, very funny guys. They're very, very accomplished guys. But everybody was kind of uptight. And I, I just thought as the team leader, it was my job to kind of break the ice. So I was originally dressed in a very expensive suit, and jewelry, and blah, blah, blah. But I had noticed that in, in the bathroom there was a velour purple velour bathrobe mm-hmm. so with the with the cameras running I took off the nice suit and I put on the bathrobe and came out and it completely busted the whole thing open everybody started to relax 
And, and again, we, we later found out that that the representative went back to Chapo and said, hey, you know, the boss didn't even get dressed up. He's marching around in a bathroom. <laughs> and the, uh, the prosecutors later, when we went to court, the prosecutors always referred to that meeting, not the first meeting. They always referred to it as the bathrobe meeting. So, you know, it's again, it's, it's humorous, but it broke the ice. And it just showed the Sinaloa cartel that, you know, these guys are... They're the real deal. They don't even get dressed up for these things. Right. They don't really, yeah. They don't bother so we to spent put that, on a suit. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that first day, we spent four hours negotiating with them. Yeah. Uh, when I say them, they had sent somebody named uh, Manuel Gutierrez Guzman, who was the first cousin of Chapo. He was their spokesman. And, you know, we hit it off from that first day, and we were talking crazy amounts of dope within the first hour. Amazing. So you come out in a bathrobe. Uh, I remember you told me your hair was slicked back. Came out in a bathrobe. And you were kind of like going around like you want a part, pet piece of me, like this kind of stuff. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I had a little fun with it. It's yeah. on video, but no one's ever going to see that. <laughs> um, but what happened was, I put, now I was supposed to be the equivalent of Chapo. I'm the head of this Sicilian organization now. So, so I'm going to act like Chapo would act, which is you don't get into the nuts and bolts of the meeting. I took the pretty undercover and we went out and sat on the deck and got a tan and had a couple of drinks. And <laughs> whenever uh, something important would happen, one of the undercovers would come out, whisper in my ear, I'd whisper back. I paid Manuel no attention. Yeah. And again, people you know, probably sound think I'm sound crazy. This stuff works. I've done it forever. <laughs> And you just don't walk up to a dope dealer from the yeah. Sinaloa cartel in five minutes and, and tell him you're deep and darker circus. I wouldn't even speak to him. So you're out taking a tan with your girlfriend and having on, a the, drink. on the balcony on the thirtieth on the thirtieth floor. Right, that's funny. Yep. I had a nice tan. I got a nice tan. <laughs> this meeting was incredibly important. The FBI had to convince members of the Sinaloa cartel, who were highly suspicious, that the people they were dealing with were really Italian criminals. Mike was their leader, so Mike led the way as El Viejo. Now Mike is not a trained actor, but like a great actor, he inhabited this bold and flamboyant character, strutting around the room in a colorful silk robe and shouting orders to his minions. And he pulled it off. And when I told Washington we had a chance to meet the Sinaloa cartel, they were like, you know, meet them next week. And I'm, <laughs> no, I'm dead serious. And yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. I say, we can't meet them for maybe a year. Yeah. And they're like, what are you talking about? But I, you know, yeah. the boots on the ground that do this thing regularly, we understand these, but sometimes the people in position of authority and supervision haven't done it before. So they think this stuff right. just like happens magically. Right. right? It right, doesn't. Right. No, you have to look, yeah, you have to look like who you're pretending to be at every moment, right? So you can't be dressed you, in. You, when you do this yeah. stuff, and I, I've taught people this all the time, from the second I walk out of my house where I really live, from that second on, I'm that other person, I'm that undercover persona, and I have to expect I'm being followed, I'm being watched. If you don't have that mindset, 
something bad's going to happen. All right. Yeah. I think Ralph, you and I talked about it. There was a there's a bridge outside of Boston that when I hit this bridge, I become that other person. I have to. All right. And, it, and now that I'm retired, yeah. it's it's so much nicer not to have to be two people. Yeah. But when you're doing, you know, the Sinaloa cartel, it really is a psychological challenge. Right. Right. Okay. Now, if they thought if we act, think, dress, talk like cops, yeah, you're gonna we'll get never see them away. Again. Right, of course. So you got this clown out with a bathrobe on, <laughs> right, his hair you know, having back. a cocktail in the middle of the day. Well, right. I don't know who these guys are, but they're not FBI agents. I can tell right. you that. And she was in a bikini. I, I, I she was. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So you wouldn't expect yeah. to see an FBI agent in a bikini either. No. Nope. Yeah, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> And this so, all this all came out later in court, and yeah. I was testifying to some of this, and the, and the jury was literally laughing. <laughs> it was a very serious, you know, uh, process, but they were like, you know, wow, I didn't know. Yeah. I thought like Efren Zimblis Jr. did this stuff. I didn't know these guys wore bathrobes and you know strutted around. So we we hit, we we set it up the right way, and I had told them that. I was bringing my guys to relax and vacation. Yeah. So we took them out to dinner. We went out dancing, you know, just doing the necessary things. So so the, the meeting uh, kind of was, was serious business, and then you, you entertained them afterwards. Right. When you're an undercover agent, people think you're talking what we call dirty. You're talking criminal nonstop. You're not. You have to spend hours and hours. It's just like gaining friendship or or dating you have to yeah. establish a relationship with the other people yeah so you do natural things you go out to dinner you go out for drinks you you want them to like you okay and get a sense of who you are which is actually right. uh, a false sense <laughs> right yeah. and i tell people when i do my training i tell people uh and it was pretty much the same with the sinaloa but i did a lot of organized crime undercover work Mm-hmm. The wise guys, the mafia, blah, blah, blah. And with those guys, they want to talk about criminal activity the least amount of time as possible. Yeah. So you could be with somebody for two, four hours, and you might get three minutes of dirty talk. Well, you have to fill the time with something else. You can't be a, a doofus, or you can't be, you know, you got to talk about something you like, sports, hobbies, whatever. But you got to be engaged for these guys because. At the end of the day, they want to do business with you. Yeah. Okay. So you have that initial meeting in February of uh, 2010, um, and with Chapo's first cousin, and then and then what happens? Well, again, when we had to get used to this in the case, we would have these yeah. meetings, and then they would obviously go back to Mexico, or he would go back to Mexico, and we had to wait weeks or months before we could find out the next step it wasn't like we were meeting with these guys around the corner every day so we would meet with manuel he would go back to uh, mexico they were they were very uh, disciplined about phone conversations they wouldn't talk on the phone mm-hmm. hardly at all other than to you know have arranged logistics <clears throat> so when we left a meeting we never knew if we would have another meeting until we got a response from Mexico. Right. 
So that February so he had to meeting, go back into the mountains, sit down with yeah, Chapo. Yeah, everything's and, face and, to face. Right. And you know the informant. We can't. You know it's too dangerous to send the informant in there like over and over again. So we we established communications with them. We established a system where basically they would call us at a certain date and time if things were going well. And there were times we didn't hear from them, and we were like, you know, are we done? We didn't know. And then the phone would ring, and we were back on. So it right. just most FBI undercover operations take place within the continental United States, and there's regular contact, daily or weekly contact. Here we had a, you know, have that's why you had to hit a kind of had to hit a home run each meeting, in order to get them to come back. So how long does it take before you you hear anything from them? Again, on again, I may not remember the exact specifics, but we knew within a brief period of time, I would say weeks, mm-hmm. that Manuel was impressed with us. Mm-hmm. That he told them. These guys are the real deal. And he did. We found out later that he told them the the boss was in his bathrobe. He like didn't even get dressed up for this meeting. That's how <laughs> and you know, you laugh everybody laughs about that, but that's that's something I I uh, stress in training. Mm-hmm. You're hearing that from the horse's mouth. You got Chapo Guzman being convinced that the FBI is really a Sicilian crime organization. So that you know, that's a big deal. And when we got word back that he was impressed with us, we knew that we were going to move forward. We had to strategically plan and prepare for each meeting. We couldn't waste any meetings. Right. So Manuel would come back and then he would slowly start bringing other people. Yeah. Uh, At one point, they invited us. I think the next meeting was in uh, the Virgin Islands, correct? Yep. So there's there's like three months in between the physical meetings. Now, we're talking to them cryptically on the phone, um, but it's it's never dirty talk for being intercepted. So, you know, it's like a boxing match. They're feeling us out. We're feeling them out. Um, We were prepared to uh, continue on. And the next meetings were the Virgin Island meetings. And again, we're trying to mirror their organization. So I'm giving, I'm taking my guys on vacation. Like when, when they believe we're in Europe, yeah. you know, we're hustling. We're, 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 yeah. we're really, so when it's time to relax, we want to go away from where the cops are yeah, and relax and enjoy the time. So we were happy to meet them in the Virgin Islands. And I believe they brought, they brought at least one other, if not two guys. Yep. His personal uh, uh, Mendoza, I think it was. Men- yeah, Mendoza yeah. came. Yeah. His personal representative. Yeah. yeah. So they come this time, and again, our job is to sell them that we're the real deal. And this is what I emphasize, and I hope they're listening. The other three undercovers have to carry the ball. I just come in periodically as the boss. So they have to. They have to go out to dinner. They have to go to the beach. They have to go out drinking with these guys. Um, but again. With each meeting, if we hear back from them and they want to meet again, means we're making progress. Right, so, and they're ta- And the business end of it is you're talking amounts of cocaine and heroin that Chapo would uh, import into Europe. Is that correct? Yes, because we knew from our we knew, well anybody in law enforcement knows at that time they had a they had a stronghold on the United States. 
Yeah. You know, they flooded our country with all kinds of dope, but right. they didn't have a, uh, a a presence, a strong presence in Europe. That's what we tried to take advantage of. And when we floated the, we called it the pipeline. We wanted to establish a pipeline between Mexico and Europe. <clears throat> it just, it melded into what their their business model was at the time. Right. So you were going to basically be their distributor in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So again, planning, 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 or preparation, by having that seem to come out of nowhere, well, it took us six months to decide that. Right. But and what kind of quantities were you talk, were, were, were they? They were, were, they were crazy about? quantities in that, in that Miami February meeting. They, they, they opened up where they could give us 20 tons. Now, to understand the scale of this request, 20 tons of cocaine laid out in kilo bricks would almost cover a football field end zone to end zone and be worth over $1 billion. And if yeah. we had said yes, they would have said, thanks, officer, I'll, I'll see you around. Yeah. Okay? Right. So this is, right. This, is right. That, this is that tap dance, the psychological chess match. We looked at them like they were crazy. Nobody does 20, ton, uh, 20 tons right off the bat. Right off the bat. Yeah. So yeah. we had to negotiate, yeah. and we, you know, we wanted only, only, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred kilos, which is a hell of a lot of dope, but it's a very small quantity in the in the big picture. But we we have to act unlike cops. Right. So you have to act like a criminal organization. Right. Give us a, a, a smaller amount, and we'll we'll test it. And Let, we'll... let's see what let's see how each side handles it. Right. Okay. Right. You know, and right. we we bent over backwards. We were very respectful, but we weren't like uh, overwhelmed that we were dealing with Chapo. All right. I even told Manuel at one point, "Your guy's stuck with a warrant over his head. I can move anywhere in the world. Your guy's stuck in the mountains." <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. And yeah. which which is true. You know, he was limited in what he could do because he couldn't leave Mexico. So that's why Manuel had to come to Europe and and um, the United States to meet with us. But he was ba- ma- uh, Manuel was we ended up calling Manuel the telephone. That's mm-hmm. how the messages were exchanged. And all during this time, you're also having to deal with the FBI brass, right? So what what is their take? Are they they pleased with your progress? Are they pushing you to move faster? Like what? what was you that have like? to understand because the case was out of Boston, which was unusual. We were supervised by people in Boston, and they, all of whom were excellent bosses. Now, FBI headquarters in Washington obviously has overall authority and overall oversight, but we used our bosses in Boston to kind of keep them off our backs so we could work. Right. And that's not, I'm not uh, disparaging anybody, but... When you're doing something like this and you're involved in the day-to-day planning, preparation, meetings, you can't like spend your whole day on the phone with Washington explaining yourself. So right. our big- our, right. Having them second guess everything. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. because of who the targets were, because of our initial successes, we were able to kind of move forward without too much crap, for lack of a better term. Uh, every FBI investigation is monitored. Everybody has to deal with Washington. It's just the way it is. But we had great bosses in Boston 
who allowed us, and I remember distinctly my direct boss saying, you know, give me all the paperwork. I'll take care of that. You go do what you got to do. That's great. So we were protected, yeah. if that's the right word, by our, yeah, yeah. By our management. They were running interference for you. Yeah. 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 You know, later, later in the case, headquarters started to tighten the noose. But after these mm-hmm. first initial meetings, we were, we were supported very well. So after the yeah. Virgin Islands meeting, they went back. We had to wait to see if we were still in the game. Whatever we did was impressive enough that they came back to us. The next series of meetings took place in Florida, and they brought financial people and legal people. So we knew that we were dealing with their, I, I used to refer to it as their executive level board or their, you know, their management board. They brought serious legal people, serious financial people, because think about it. If you take away the, the illegal aspect of it, cocaine and heroin, if you have two conglomerates trying to do a deal in Europe, one's in Mexico, you know, you're going to send your top people to work right. a deal out. And these were very capable people. Very educated, very right. well-spoken, very well-dressed, uh, right. very impressive people. If they ever devoted the same uh, level of interest to legitimate work, they'd probably be very successful. Uh, they're not stupid people, believe me. Right. So we had right. these financial and these, <clears throat> these. Uh, it was mainly financial. And that's when, because I was running that national team, I had access to all the undercovers around the country. So I mm-hmm. brought in guys who were very skilled in financial and money laundering. So just as we were meeting new people, I was introducing new people to them. <clears throat> so they didn't see the same four faces every time. And and there were many meetings where they would see me maybe through a window or sitting out in a car, and I didn't even get come into the meeting. You know, that's what I have people working for me to do, just as Chapo had. You know, I basically was Chapo for us, so I would send my attorney, I would send my legal guy. And again, we had we had exceptional undercover agents working this case. There was there were no like mm-hmm. uh, there were no rookies or or uh, sloppy undercovers working this. They were the the best the the FBI had to offer. So. Uh... In that meeting in Florida in August, the the, the money laundering came up. Right. Do you remember? Yeah, the we were we had that? a function again, a social function. You know, we don't. It's not always mm-hmm. business, but business inevitably comes up. And uh, I believe that it was the attorney uh, who approached one of our guys. I believe it was Patricio, and began to discuss money laundering. And mm-hmm. he asked them how much. Uh, they were talking about because money laundering inevitably goes hand in hand with drug trafficking. I had yeah. done a lot of money laundering cases in my career. I knew, uh, I knew the right way to go about it. And we said to them, "Well, what do you think? You know, and what do you what do you have in mind?" He said, "Just a little bit." And I believe his comment was five hundred million to start. <laughs> All right, just a little bit. And yeah. what a, one of the problems yeah. with the Mexican cartels is exactly that. They make so much cash money, it's very difficult to clean up. I mean, they literally have, we've seen them, they literally have underground tunnels that is stuffed full of U.S. cash that they literally can't get rid of. They put them in wheelbarrows or small trains to transport. There's just that much cash 
<laughs> hanging around. Yeah. So yeah. what that told me when they approached us about that, we we eventually told them, yeah, we'll lend your money later. We want to do the dope first. But what that told me was, you know, we were in solid. If they're asking us to launder their funds, you know, they're going to give you X amount of dollars and trust you to return yeah. a percentage of that. That You don't do that unless yeah. you're in tight. Right. So, you know, these are all positive signs. So your credibility with them was was very, very high. Yes. And again, we told them no. Yeah. You yeah. know, who, what cops are going <laughs> to turn down laundering money? Right. And right. I, ha- I literally had to go to Washington and explain our position where we didn't want to do it because if we started to go down the money laundering path, mm-hmm. we would have uh, we would have got away from the drug trafficking. If we were going to prosecute these people on drug trafficking charges, yeah, we needed to have actual drugs in our possession. Right. So the money was kind of a it was exciting and and it just it didn't justify what we all the time and energy we had set up to do the right. case. So. Uh, and then I think the next uh, meeting was in Spain in 2011. Uh, that's right. We went to yep. Madrid. Uh, and I think that's the po- that's the point where you had contact with Chapel. Is that correct? Or what, we were trying to arrange. Earlier? Uh, when we were in the Virgin Islands, Mendoza called Chapo, and Chapo was on the phone with us in the Virgin Islands. And... Mm-hmm. Patricio and Antonio, two of our undercovers, obviously, were Spanish speakers. I wasn't going to get on the phone because I don't speak Spanish. And they got on the phone with him and and had a conversation. And, you know, he basically said, hey, you know, uh, tell Viejo, you know, I'm looking forward to this. You know, he had bought it. He tells us, you know, hope things are going to work out. Hope we have a long relationship. So... They talked to him in uh, the Virgin Islands. When we went to Spain, I was supposed to speak directly to him uh, because he was now introducing us to his people, his traffickers who were in Europe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so all of this is leading to, you know, we're going to do this this exchange, Yeah. but you need to meet our people. They need to meet. And we, knew, we were being vetted every time. We knew that they were watching us. Right. You know, right. so, you know, it was, a, it was a cat and mouse game. Yeah, yeah. So you go to Spain. And I think that's where you dis- you started to discuss uh, drugs and test loads, correct? Right. Uh, at that point, we had now spent more than a year, I believe, pushing this. And and again, because you got to understand it, if you're talking about a large quantity transaction, either by vessel or by air, the the details involved in that are incredible. This isn't something you can work out in an hour. And especially given, you know, the back and forth, they had to go into the mountains, come back to us. It took a long time, but we were patient. And at this point, we now started to talk specifics. Mm-hmm. We were going to get X amount of dope. We talked about using cargo planes, vessels, etc. cetera. Uh, how much we had to dis- – now, you got to remember, we also can't – if we get 1,000 kilos of – Cocaine, we can't pay for it. The U.S. taxpayer is not going to give the FBI <laughs> yeah. millions and millions of dollars. So yeah. we had to be yeah. creative, and we told them, hey, rather than paying you for it, we'll offload it for you, we'll yeah. get rid of it for you, and we'll take 20% of the load as our payment. That way we don't have to give them any cash, and we find out where all their dope is going. So the, these are the negotiations that go on for like 
weeks, months, now we're into yeah. a year. So you're negotiating percentages, you're negotiating terms. Right. And when I say we stuff. are, this is getting back to the three undercovers. That was their primary job. And I would just come in and clean it up. An interesting thing I remember about Spain was when I went into the meetings, the other undercovers and the informant had prepared these guys so well, they stood up when I walked in like I was the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that but that's again. This is what I teach yeah. in training. Yeah, they were Pavlov's dogs because right. of the way the scenario had been set up. So they knew that when I walked in the room, business is at You're it. The it, hefe. You're the hefe. Yeah. You're the hefe's here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and that's there's, that there's a video from Spain that we played at trial where they all jump up. It looked like you know the United Nations when I walked in the room. Yeah. Uh, but that's just the way they had been prepared. Yeah. And yeah. uh, Spain was successful. The Spain, the Spanish National Police were great. They allowed us access to a private airstrip. We were trying to lure Chapo out of Mexico. And we did a scenario where I went, I took Manuel to this private airfield. I met with all the generals mm -hmm. as if I controlled the airport. <laughs> and we offered the opportunity for Chapo to flee to Europe. Yeah. And again, we find out a lot of things you find out after the investigation. We found out that he was seriously consider that. We had hoped he had jumped on a plane, but that was the type of cooperation we got from the foreign law enforcement. So th this was a worldwide effort. The FBI was leading the the show, but we got great right. help from Italy, from Spain, from uh, England. We got help from everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you decide to not use the airstrip? That was a decision that, that they made. That they made. Know. And what do they come back with in terms of a, an Th alternative? This is, well, no, they a kind of a, a secondary goal was to try to get him out of Mexico. So that's what the airfield yeah. was about. The dope right. deal. So you can arrest him. Yeah. yeah. If he if he felt so much pressure in Mexico, he had to flee. Well, he had to be, he had to go somewhere. So we just gave them the opportunity to come to Europe if he ever chose to. Um, he eventually did not, but they, it was a serious consideration we found out later. Uh, you know, we're still focused on our ex uh, drug exchange, and it's during those uh, meetings in Madrid that uh, they commit to start sending us uh, drugs that summer. And that what yeah. leads to the test loads that you're familiar with for people who aren't educated in drug trafficking— you can't send a container from point A to point B with no previous relationship uh, without customs, whatever cus country it is, the customs yeah. people are going to search that vessel. So we had to do some test loads. We only wanted it to be one or two test loads. <clears throat> they ended up, over that summer, they ended up doing, I think it was four or five. And we were getting mm -hmm. a little bit aggravated because... It takes time, money, etc. They were being careful. We understood that, but at the same, this is this is really when uh, Washington started to get a little bit antsy. Mm -hmm. You know, we had now been working these guys for a couple of years, and we had great conversations. We had a great conspiracy, but we didn't have any actual drugs. Right, and without drugs, you don't have any real evidence. You can charge people with drug trafficking charges without drugs, but you really don't want to do that, and especially don't want to do that with the Sinaloa cartel. It's called a dry conspiracy. 
but we were adamant that we had to seize drugs in order to uh, move forward with a prosecution. So in, when you talk about test loads, you're talking about uh, just seeing if you can get things through certain ports and through certain right. customers. You have to have company correct. A have a history with company yeah. B. Right. And every month they get a load of pineapples. They get a load of fruit, they, whatever it is. That's what they were establishing with us. But, you know, again, we never lose sight of the fact that we're law enforcement. We're telling yeah. them, hey, you know, one or two is plenty. You know, yeah. you're sending it to Spain. It's our responsibility to get it. Any risk is on our end, not yours, even though they'd lose the product. Uh, but they were very disciplined. And, you know, that's why they're the top. They were the top. Uh, <laughs> and they were sending actual fruit. Correct. Oh yeah, we we, these we fed loads. half the country of Spain with with uh, <laughs> pineapples and plantains and everything. But it was frustrating, so you and to... you got to remember, the case agent who started this whole case is very inexperienced. He yeah. thinks they're going to send, you know, drop them out of planes. They're going to drop kilos out of parachutes, and yeah. it's 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 a it's a very very sophisticated process. So you're getting shipments of of pineapples and bananas or whatever it is, and it's your job to get it into the ports, past the customs right. officials. We had so to show so that. that. We also had to- The Sinaloa cartel. Exactly. We had to show the cartel yeah. that we could get it off the ship, through customs, and into Europe, which we did. I mean, we had to, we literally had to drive this junk out of the right. port. Right. We didn't know if we were being watched. Right. Right, of course, you no, probably were. So we, you know, you we have were. to go through yeah. the motions. People get frustrated, but right. I knew going yeah. into this that if we were going to do it right, we had to do all of these steps, and it was going to be frustrating, and it was going to be long-term, but one mistake, this is what people don't get, you make one mistake, and <clears throat> three years of That's investigation it. are out the window. Okay, so you do two or three, I think it was four. I think it was, it was either four or five, yeah. Yeah, and that that goes well. No, no glitches. No, we're, we're establishing that. the relationship, but but as El Jefe yeah. in Europe, I'm now bitching to my people. Hey, you know, let's get going. So that we're now applying soft pressure to them. Hey, make this happen. You know, there's a big difference between one and two test loads and four. Right. You know, you're you're wasting basically another six to twelve months. And you're doing all this arranging and- It's and complicated. It's I don't know if you've ever tried to do yeah. it. It's, I learned a lot. I can yeah. tell you that. Right. I bet. I bet. So uh, so now we're at like early 2012. And, and I think everybody at this point is getting ready, uh, uh, expecting the first load of drugs and everybody's getting a little antsy. Right. Everybody from the Sinaloa cartel to the Sicilians to FBI headquarters to Boston. Yeah. There was yeah. there was a tremendous amount of pressure. I felt comfortable that we were going to succeed, but you got to understand at that point I probably had in the chain of command I probably had 20 bosses above me. And each one of them needs an explanation, each one of them has to be convinced. So we had to make a critical decision at that point. In, in that's late 2011, early 2012, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, it took me about s 
three months, four months, that I finally went to the case agent and said, listen, you're not going to like this, but we have to tell the Sinaloa's that the Italians are walking away. We needed to now turn up the pressure to the point that they either had to provide something or walk away. Because, very simply, no bad guys would stick around that long. So if we continue to just wait, they're going to say, wait a minute, these guys, maybe these guys are really cops. So that was something that I decided. The case agent was very, very disappointed. Um, But it it was the right move, hopefully, at the time. So basically, we're going to... We're going to communicate through our channels that that that, that El Viejo is. He, we told gone. them straight out they're gone, and we walked away. We we literally they tried to reach us and we stopped communicating. Wouldn't pick up the phone. <clears throat> so that was yeah. I think we did that in February or March of twelve. Yeah, that was a, and believe me, there was a lot of sleepless nights about that decision. And again, yeah. You know, I bark about the FBI when I don't think we're being supported. Uh, they supported that decision. They didn't like it, but they left that up to the investigators. I thought it was the right move. I knew it was a gamble. Um, I told him I thought it had an 80% chance of working. In reality, I thought it had about a 20% chance of working, but I didn't tell him that. <laughs> um, but, you know, there comes a point in a case, every case, where you got to you, you got to make something happen. And we had reached that point. So we did that, I believe it was March. Mm-hmm. And thankfully and luckily and hopefully that kind of lit a fire under there uh, in their jungle. And that yeah. leads up to July of 2012. And okay. July of 2012, we get a call out of the blue, go to Detroit in 24 hours, there's something there for yeah. you. We yeah. send a team to Detroit. Um, overnight, the next day, uh, we go to a Mexican restaurant. We meet with the Mexican uh, employees. They take us to a back alley, point to a car. We reach in the car. There's a takeout bag. And when we get back to the hotel, there's a huge amount of uh, heroin and methamphetamine. And this was totally unexpected. It wasn't unexpected in the sense that they had to do, we had, we had kind of called their bluff. All right. Right. You guys are supposed to be the cynical cartel. You're supposed to be this and that. You can't even give us a, a bag of dirt. So again, you know, what cop is going to say to them, we're walking away. All right. So we set that up. And once we got the heroin and the methamphetamine, I knew literally that moment that we were going to get the load that we had hoped for. And literally within, I think it was only two or three weeks later, uh, at the end of July, uh, finally a ship arrives in Spain and Mm -hmm. there's 346 kilos of cocaine. So... The mother load finally came in. Yeah, it took three. Without, it took three years. Yeah, without without fronting a dime. Didn't pay a penny for it. This was the moment of victory. 
The FBI had helped facilitate the largest seizure of methamphetamine and heroin in Detroit law enforcement history, which was stuffed in takeout bags and dropped on the front seat of a car. They had also seized 346 kilos of cocaine in Spain. So after three years of investigation, the FBI now had illegal drugs supplied by the Sinaloa cartel in their possession, which after decades of trying, finally solidified the legal case against them. So now you've got the drugs, you're talking to Chapo, you're, you've, you've, been, you've established direct communications with him, um, and, and then what happens? Oh. You get the you get the dope, you get the product, but the case isn't finished until you get the bodies. So now we have to arrest. All right. So we know we're not gonna we can't go into the mountains of Mexico and grab him, but we can grab all of his people. So we are we arrange for them to come to Spain again and we wanna have a celebratory party. We finally made our first yep. deal. Drugs are flowing freely through mm -hmm. Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, they're expecting to get paid. I believe they thought we were going to give them $13 million. So it's setting up the arrest. So we work with the Spanish National Police, and we set up the final day. <clears throat> but again, from experience and from what older agents had taught me, we wanted to bleed them dry the last day because we're never going to see these guys again. So yeah. rather than just arrest them, we invite them. They think they're going to a huge party. Yeah. We bring them to the hotel, and then I sit with Manuel. One of the undercovers and myself sat with Manuel for, I believe it was four hours. And we literally went through step by step of what had happened in the case that Chapo made every decision. In the federal system, you have what's called co-conspirator statements, so if Manuel says that Chapo uh, approved all of these, that's evidence that you can use. So mm -hmm. it's it's almost the same as the words coming out of Chapo's mouth. And yep. we had all other kinds of evidence, obviously, but we spent that last day, that was in, I believe that was August, <coughs> mm -hmm. August of August 12. August 7th, I think. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We spent that last day milking him dry yeah. Of every detail. And this is all on video. Video, audio. Audio tape. Yeah. To the point that uh, I finally got a message from our team saying, no mas, you know, no more. You you got it. Um, I then brought up the other, the European guys, uh, the telephone, the attorney, everybody else. Uh, that was other one other thing I should point out. I would never talk dirty to anybody other than Manuel. Mm -hmm. So when I would meet with the lawyer, I would meet with the financial guy, I would meet with the distributor. They never had, and that's the way Chapo would. Uh, that's the way Chapo would operate. I would only talk to the most trusted person. So I, so that last day, I'm sure they were surprised because here I am, telling the whole story. Well, that's a reason. There's a reason because the Spanish cops are waiting downstairs. All right. So we go through this. It was a long day, but a very productive day. And then at the end of the day, they were all arrested in Madrid. And then there's another step to this process in terms of uh, as soon as they're arrested, you want to talk to them. Right. So what happens is they're arrested, and we, we obviously arrested them in Europe so that Mexico wouldn't know about it right away. But yeah. we also know that if they didn't report in by a certain time, that that 
meant there was probably a problem. Yeah. So we did start to interview them. We did start to gather intelligence and additional information. Uh, but for a series of reasons that still aggravate me, we weren't allowed to pursue those that new new evidence. Mm-hmm. We were basically said, you accomplished what you were supposed to, shut it down. So they were telling you about other links that El Chapo had higher up in the Mexican government. Is that okay to say? Yes. Yes. Okay. There's, and, again, and because, you were told yeah, n- not to pursue that. We were told that we had achieved our objectives because we were because we were basically a drug case. Yeah. And we now seized the drugs. We had arrested them. That we had accomplished our objectives. Right. That we were now going down a different path, and that wasn't authorized. Okay. Uh, it's just the internal workings of the legal system in the FBI. Yeah. Um, you know, you can speculate if there was other reasons, but but again, that, <clears throat> that we were told that our uh, our job was done. Okay. Okay. And they. They go to trial. They pl- they plead. Everybody pled guilty, except mm-hmm. except the lawyer. Mm-hmm. The lawyer is always the smartest guy in the room. Remember, <laughs> he went to trial. He went to trial. I think it lasted five days, and he was convicted on all counts in less than five hours. Okay, so these guys were all put away except for Chapo. Everybody got arrested. Everyone was convicted. Everyone got, they averaged about twenty to twenty-five years each, and then Chapo obviously was uh, beyond our grasp at the time, and then yeah. he was later obviously captured and extradited to the United States. <clears throat> yeah, I think he was grabbed in uh, twenty sixteen. I think it's twenty sixteen, correct? Yeah, uh, uh, January of twenty sixteen. Yep. Yeah, and 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 you got the word uh, of that arrest. The case agent called me or texted me, and it just said, you know, we got him. And he didn't, you know, there was no further explanation needed. Right. You knew who he met. Um, When they said we got him, I said, you know, hopefully they'll hold on to him this time because, you know, as we know, he he fled a second time before we were able to actually get him for good. And that's Mm -hmm. another fallacy in TV and films, like, the day of the arrest is the last. No, that's just the start of the process. What good is working three years if these guys don't go to jail? Do, uh, what do you know about the raid in Mexico where they where they finally uh, grabbed Chapo? Were, were you privy to any of that, or was that just a phone call where you heard they got? Uh, did, did you know it was in the process? I want to be careful or? how I present this. I would say that okay. I was not surprised. When he was arrested, I knew that they were getting closer and closer. They don't call us up and tell us everything, right. but we're, we're kept right. because we're one of the officers with a prosecution. You know, we knew that they were tightening the noose. Uh, yeah. It was clear that Mexico had kind of uh, had its fill of Chapo and was willing to work yeah. with the United States. It was becoming States. a liability. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it affects, yeah. you know, the State Department. Many things outside of the law enforcement arena, it was start, the squeeze was being made on Mexico. So, yeah. uh, like yeah. I said, I didn't know exactly when and where they would get him. It was a vicious shootout, I know that. Right. And I give a tremendous amount of credit to the Mexican Marines that mm-hmm. went and got him because it was a it was a nasty situation. 
people were killed and during the I raid. can't remember. I know bad guys were killed. I don't know yeah. if any good guys were killed. I, yeah. I just don't remember. Yeah, but the Mexicans uh, basically arrested him themselves. Yes. And then the United States. We we extradite, extradited the him United here. States and Mexico worked together. But yeah. the actual and and again, I would like the same thing if it was on our side. You know, they arrested yeah. their own and they handed them over. And I'm sure we made it very clear to them that uh, we wanted him. The 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 political evidence. pressure yeah. exerted on Mexico had to be mm-hmm. uh, incredible. Be, but you know we weren't gonna we weren't gonna give up. We weren't gonna stop. So they right. they finally right. decided it was in their best interest to turn him over. Right, and uh, and then he was extradited here. He was extradited here. And, he was put on trial in New York. Uh, yeah. There were historical cases throughout the United States. You know, Chapo had been a target of the U.S. government for many, many years, Chicago, New York, Houston. So all of the cases, uh, we had the only case that had the simultaneous evidence, you know, the time uh, evidence. All of our evidence was collected and forwarded to Washington, and then it was um, prosecuted in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. was obviously he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in the supermax. What a case, huh? And and how was that received in in the FBI? That must have been a big deal. Well, it was well received. That was you know it was a big deal. Yeah. It's interesting from where we started to where we finished. There were some people that never thought it would happen, which I understood. It was a long shot. There were other people who were very supportive, and there were times that we, we as the investigators, would get frustrated, and then we would talk to certain people, and they'd say, hey, you know, keep your head down, keep going. Yeah. Until they don't answer your phone call, keep right. going. It's going well, yeah. You know, yeah. You know yeah. people don't recognize, th- that's three years of work that each time we contact them, it could blow up in our face. So right. th- that's like constant pressure for three years and when it was over and done with you know I was very proud and again I told you I got a lot of accolades but the the people most responsible for that success was the case agent the informant and the other three undercovers you know but don't think that just because Chapo was taken off the streets that they have they're still a very very powerful organization Uh, you know we heard them pretty good back then you know, they took a hit for a while, but as long as there's a demand for drugs, there'll be cartels, whether it's sure. Mexico, whether it's Europe. It, sure. It's just the way it is. It was never simply a case of seizing El Chapo. In order to lock him away in prison, the FBI had to make a legal case against him. Mike and his team accomplished that over three years in a brilliantly planned and executed undercover operation. On August 7th, 2012, Mike and his team had arrested eight top members of the Sinaloa cartel. A few days later, the U.S. Justice Department issued an indictment of El Chapo. On January 7th, 2016, El Chapo was arrested in Mexico. Soon after that, he was extradited to the U.S. and put on trial. The evidence against him was incontrovertible. Shortly after the trial, then-FBI Director James Comey traveled to Boston to hand awards to Mike and the other FBI agents who had worked the case. When it was Mike's turn to go to the podium, he remembered looking at Director Comey and thinking, 
that the FBI leadership had actually let them down and had shut off their investigations for reasons he didn't understand. In his own words, he thought, what the fuck does outside the scope of your original objective mean? Hmm, that's how Mike's mind works. The case was a huge success, but make no mistake about it, the Sinaloa cartel continues to smuggle huge amounts of illegal drugs into the United States. Just before El Chapo went to trial, Mike and I met for lunch in Santa Monica, California. As we entered a cafe on 3rd Street, Mike sort of maneuvered to a certain table in the back. He turned to me and said, Ralph, do you mind if I sit facing the door? And I said, no, not at all. Like, why? And he said, well, you know, like I'm a major witness in the case against El Chapo and they might have some people like looking out for me. I was like, oh, okay, Mike. (laughs) Thanks for letting me know. But that's Mike McGowan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe. And make sure to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines. Thank you.